0: Welcome to the EdSurge Air podcast, a weekly look at the future of education. I'm Steven Uno. It's one of the biggest buzzwords in education today, the whole child. There are foundations, frameworks, and a lot of written words devoted to the idea that teaching students is about more than what's said in class. But what does whole child actually mean? And more important, what does it look like in action? As it turns out, it may require a surprising amount of imagination, That's something this week's guest had to learn on the job. Jonathan Raymond is former superintendent of Sacramento City Unified and author of Wildflowers, a school superintendent's challenge to America. In his new book, Raymond challenges schools to relinquish dogma and ideology and to focus on putting children first. Raymond's path to heading up a large urban district wasn't conventional. Most of his career was spent in law, politics, and as president of Massachusetts Commonwealth Corporation, a skills and job training agency for at-risk youth. His arrival in Sacramento coincided with a Great Recession and six straight years of funding cuts. He wanted to shake things up. And not really knowing anyone, he started with relationships. At the recent EdSurge Fusion Conference, Raymond spoke with us about its vision and why schools may need to retool everything from how they interact with parents to the ways they approach budgets and summer vacations. And he gets candid about his struggles and missteps with teachers' unions. So what does it mean to teach to the whole child? Let's find out. Thank you so much for being with us here on the Ed Surge On Air podcast. Whole child is a huge topic and it's a big focus of your book, Wildflowers. And I want to get into some specifics, but can you first give us the 30-second elevator pitch on what it is and why it's important?
1: Happy to, Stephen. When I... When I talk about whole child education, I like to talk about questions and we often start with questions like what are the hopes and dreams of your child or how can we give your child what he or she most needs and simply the question of how is your child. So it, it starts with a set of questions. But then it really recognizes that our our children are full human beings, right? So that we need to really think about educating their head, making sure that they have the knowledge and the skills and the tools to be intellectually curious and inquisitive. We also need to recognize that to really engage kids, we got to figure out how to get them active and passionate about what it is they're learning. And often that means being able to see that what they're learning is real and has relevancy in the world and in their community. And they can literally get their hands in it. But then we also need to remember that that true learning really comes from the heart. And are we paying attention to how we're teaching our children to be able to, to be understanding, to understand that there are differences and people learn differently from them and that learning differently is normal. The power of walking in someone else's shoes so that our young people are able to engage in, in dialogue, discussion, even able to argue. And at the end of the day, compromise and understand and how, to, how certain decisions get made. That emanates from the heart. So I would say that whole child education recognizes that we need to educate the, the whole person And it also means we need to engage our families, our parents, and our community as partners in this process.
0: That's great. You were a superintendent for more than four years in Sacramento, and I want to talk a little bit about. Some of your approaches there. Summer slide is something I wanted to talk about. It's a very well-known phenomenon. Students can lose a lot of ground during the summer months when they're not in school. Can you talk about some of the specific summer programs you put in place for students that you talk about in the book?
1: My kids were fortunate. They could go back east with grandparents and go to camps. But the majority of our families, 75% that lived in poverty, they didn't have those options. When I got to California in 2009, the the, the sort of the, the going mantra was, you know, close schools down, right? Turn off the lights, turn off the air conditioning, shut down. And the reality was most of our kids were either on the street or home in front of television sets without, without adult supervision or involvement because people and parents were out working. So we decided to really change that. And in order to do that, we needed our partners. We needed community partners. And we were fortunate at the time that there was a a grant opportunity that enabled us to create our summer of service program. And what was really powerful about this was that it was a summer program for incoming middle school students and incoming high school students, where they could actually go to their new middle and high school. They could meet their new classmates and some of their new teachers. It provided mentoring opportunities for upperclassmen at both the middle school and the high school level. And most importantly, these young people got to choose their own community service project that they could work on over the course of these five weeks. Some chose to work with homeless. Some chose to work with drug addictions. and But the point was, is that it was the student's choice. They got to decide and they got to choose. And along the way, if you think about it, right, when school started that fall, these Kids had already been on their new campuses, they had new friends, they knew some of their teachers, and they had a project that they could work on throughout the school year. And the older students could exhibit those leadership skills. So it was a win on multiple levels. And we were able to do great things for these young people for a five week period. I'll never forget the first year we had it, driving by one of our high schools, 7.30 on a Monday morning after school had ended the previous Friday. And there were hundreds of kids out front waiting to get into school at 7.30 in the morning. I mean, who gets up early on summer vacation? Well, kids get up when they know that there's going to be something really valuable and exciting and meaningful for them. So that's one example of, of the kind of programs that we look to implement with our community partners.
0: Uh, So such a big part of your whole child approach in Sacramento involved parent engagement, especially to busy parents or ones who have been maybe burnt by the system before. Uh, You especially talked about rethinking the parent-teacher conference. What does a more integrated approach look like in that area?
1: We started the work based on building trusted relationships with our parents. And I was fortunate when I got to Sacramento that we had the parent-teacher home visit project. It had been started in Sacramento about nine years before my arrival, uh, and it was only in about 20 of our 67-plus schools at at the time. But it's a program where teachers get trained to to go with their colleagues into the home of their students as a way to begin to build a relationship and and break down some of the, the stereotypes and the stigmas and the blame that occurs. And that first conversation is always that question, right? What are the hopes and dreams for your child? And it's amazing what that dialogue can do to start to create a relationship because our parents are our children's first and most consistent teacher. And we need them. We need their support, their energy, their ideas to be to be full partners. So building off of that program as we began to expand it Uh, and almost up to 50 of our schools by the time I left. We wanted to do something different with that teacher conference experience, what I call the the drive-by. Everyone gets 20 minutes max, perhaps, and it's even less at the high school, or even at the middle school level. The high school's ones are usually you have to really push to get a conference, and there's no time to really get into understanding what is happening with my child in, in a classroom or even with four or five different teachers. So we said, how about if we take that time and we do something different? And in the schools where we had the parent-teacher home visit program going, where we had trusted relationships, we said, what if we invite our parents to come to school every quarter uh, as a whole class? And we engage them and we really empower them by showing them their students work. And being able to then help them by giving them a couple things they could do for their child at home during the week. Say something in math and something in English language arts that would support their efforts. And what if we created some goals with them? And then we came back again in six or eight weeks and were able to show, you know, here's the progress that your student had had and had made. Enable them to ask any questions. So that's what I mean by rethinking you know how do we use our time and how do we use our resources, and those things don't have to cost necessarily more money, but they can yield better results.
0: Your tenure coincided with the Great Recession, and uh, there were quite a few budget shortfalls that you had to deal with when you were superintendent. Uh, how do we really show families that they're important during times of budget uncertainty and cuts when you have to, when schools have to make difficult decisions?
1: We can start by listening to them. We can start by asking them questions, uh, asking for their ideas, getting their involvement and their input. So we would hold community forums around our budget. Uh, we would ask our school communities to, first of all, here we want to explain and we want you to understand what our situation is, what we're dealing with, and what ideas do you have, and how could how can you be helpful? And just by just by inviting and by listening. And when people know that they have a say, not necessarily that it's gonna be their way, they're really appreciative. And they're more willing to lend their shoulder to the wagon to help push it up the hill. Uh, And you'll be amazed at what kind of resources are available to you within a community when you ask.
0: Yeah, that's great. So you wrote in the book that Americans have a tough time thinking through problems that involve inequality. If we assume that to be true, where do we even start with that when we can't even think through these problems?
1: I think we have to be honest about what we're trying to address. And that's what I say, that that a whole child approach at its very heart is about all children. And it recognizes that we must give children not equal treatment, but equal consideration. And some children and some families, simply by the nature of the challenges that they're facing, need and require more. And we just need to be honest about that and then be willing to do something about it. And sometimes that means having a vision, which is based on whole child. And when you get the opportunities or opportunities present themselves, then you, then you act. You know, as I said, I didn't come to Sacramento to green schools or to necessarily change the way we fed our children. But when you have a vision that's about putting children first, and you realize that three quarters of the children eat the food that we serve them, it makes you start thinking differently about the kind of food you're serving children. So that's what I mean. When you have that philosophy and you're grounded in a vision which is about putting children in in the middle. And making decisions around them Um, opportunities present themselves by which you can act and show and live your values
0: so i wanted to ask if you had ever seen that vision in action in any of your schools
1: certainly when we established our superintendent priority schools which were our attempts to really create incubators of excellence in our most neediest and disadvantaged schools at a time when, as you said, in the Great Recession, we wanted to see that we, if we could do this ourselves with our own great principals and our own great teachers. And so we picked a handful of schools. We enabled our best principals and leaders to go to those schools to recruit other leaders and teachers. We gave them flexibility. In other words, we gave them additional resources. We told them they could choose their own curriculum, uh, as long as they focused on literacy, on writing, they used student work. They were really rigorous on using data, and they created data inquiry teams. And they were serious about uh, uh, engaging and empowering parents. And they all embraced the parent-teacher home visit model. And in return for those standards which we laid out and the expectations, we gave them the, f- the freedom and flexibility to, again, use the curriculum to use materials and to use different kinds of assessments. And we saw extraordinary things happen in these schools. Again, our lowest performing schools. A few of them got out of program improvement and school improvement under No Child Left Behind to become the the standard bearers of a new accountability model under the California Office to Reform Education. They became model and priority schools by the way they changed the culture and climate and created hope they created opportunity, and they had a standard of excellence. So we saw that happen in several of our schools.
0: Yeah, so the book also talks a lot about the need for quality data to make decisions, but you also write about needing to see teachers and students in action, not just as numbers, how does a whole child advocate wrap their head around the fact that data is impersonal but necessary?
1: Because data shows an evidence of student learning, right? I really believe that if, if students aren't learning, it's it's not because they can't learn. It's because we haven't figured out, you know, how to teach them so that we can meet those needs. In other words, as I talked about earlier, those those conditions, right, the, the soil, the water, the light, we have to keep figuring out what it is that it's going to require to reach a particular child. And data helps in that area, particularly looking at student work. When we're looking at a student's essay or a poem or uh, another work product, it gives us insights into whether or not the student has mastered the materials, that they can explain uh, their work and demonstrate and highlight how they got to a particular place. So that's what I talk about, the importance of using data all sorts of data, not particularly one source. It helps to illuminate for us both quantitative data and qualitative data. You know, how do we, how do we meet the needs of that child? How do we give he or she what they most need in order to flourish? And that's the imp- And that's the important. Sometimes it may be talking to a different teacher, knowing that young Johnny loves music or he loves art. So what is it about music and art that really ignites his passion and his curiosity? And how do we use that passion and experience and excitement for learning to help stimulate him to perhaps have, a, have more of a focus on his Spanish class? And what are some of the things that that art and music teacher are doing that I can learn from? So it's, it's using data to also forge conversations and connections between the adults in school and classroom settings.
0: That's great. So finally, I wanted to talk about, I guess, you had a very public battle with uh, your teachers unions during your tenure. At one point, you were even involved in a lawsuit with them over teacher retention. It sounds like it was hard for you to build that community relationship of trust. Does that speak to some of the very real challenges in the whole child community building approach? You can speak personally to just how difficult it can be sometimes.
1: I would say it had more, Stephen, to do with my relationships or inability to develop. I think strong, trusted relationships with some of, of my partners. In my early days in Sacramento, I think I had a pretty good relationship with our teachers' union. And again, right, their their job is to represent their members, and they were also ha- they had they they happened to be our employees during the the school day, and sometimes you know you have to take the time to really develop those relationships and understand that at the end of the day where do we find common ground and where can we where can we do things that are really good for kids as well as good for adults and i think at that time and 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 journey right with the resources being so difficult and having to make cut after cut after cut that at at some point because school districts are largely made up of of people right over close to 90% of our budget really was about people's salaries and benefits that, you know, the reality of that is, is it's, it's going to bump up against some of the things that you have to do or that you want to do. And, and I think that really places the premium on having strong, trusted relationships and I think there are some areas, as I look back, that I could have done some things differently. I think I could have spent more time and effort cultivating those relationships. And that's something that I share with uh, superintendents and aspiring superintendents today, which is the importance of of keeping those relationships, of the importance of knowing when you need to compromise, uh, and knowing when you need to stand firm and agreeing to disagree. All of that are important lessons that I learned and that
0: I try to share today. Great. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan. Thank you, Stephen. This has been the Ed Surge On Air podcast. Each week we feature conversations like this one, so please subscribe to keep up with future episodes. And you can support the show by letting us know how we're doing with a rating or a view. This episode was edited by Chris Hattori and produced by me, Stephen Uno. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning and education. Until then, thanks for listening.